Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire. The Weirwood Compendium, Part 8. A Silver Seahorse. Hey there, friends, mythheads, and fellow mythical astronomers, YouTube viewers, podcast listeners, and patrons of the Starry Host. It is I, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, your Starry Host. And I'm here with a delightful new episode today that I'm re-recording fresh, because the live stream recording got... Yes, well, let us not speak of it. It is dead to us now. Well, here we are, eight episodes into the Weirwood Compendium. Eleven, really, since we should include the Weirwood Goddess episode in this body of work. Yes, here we are, all these episodes into our study of Weirwoods, and I thought I'd play one of the hits, one of the old goodies. By that I mean we'll be starting off today with a bit of Morningstar discussion, a familiar topic I know. Lately we've been studying Daenerys as an Isanissa figure who symbolically goes into the green sea of the Weirwood net in all manner of clever ways, and the celestial equivalent to this involves the mythology of the planet Venus in general, and Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty in particular. To wit, Daenerys and Nissanissa symbolize the second moon that cracked open to birth dragons, and their real or symbolic deaths symbolize the burning and cracking open of the moon. Before they die, they're equivalent to a moon goddess, and after they die or symbolically die, they then represent the falling stars made up of the moon's corpse. My beloved moon meteors... They are no longer moon goddesses. They're now falling stars, and as falling stars, George has chosen to see them as equivalent to Venus, which appears to fall to the horizon every night when it's in the even star position. From moon to morning star. I know I've talked about this many times, but I just want it to be super clear in your mind before we start. Plus, it's one of the more brilliant things Martin has done with mythical astronomy symbolism, and I do love talking about it. The myth of Venus is probably familiar to you by now. Oronos's son, Kronos, cut off his balls and threw them down from heaven and into the sea. Not sent as balls. This made the sea foamy where they landed, oh yes. And from this sea foam was born Aphrodite, whose name famously means foam-born. At least that's what Hesiod, the famous Greek poet, storyteller, and mythographer said, he traced her name to Aphros, which means sea foam, though some scholars have come to dispute that. It makes sense to me, though, since Aphrodite is unquestionably associated with Venus, and Venus appears to both fall from heaven to the horizon as the even star, and to rise from the ocean as the morning star. If you live surrounded by the ocean on three sides, as most Greeks did, these fallings and risings would appear to occur into and out of the sea. The word Aphros covers the first part of her name, and scholars in the early 19th century who accepted Hesiod's analysis of Aphrodite's name suggested that the second half of Aphrodite might be traced to Odite, O-D-I-T-E, meaning wanderer, or Dite, D-I-T-E, which means bright. Again, I cautiously venture to say, in my layman's opinion, that this does make sense to me. The whole idea of this myth is that a star, a bright wanderer, appears to fall into and rise from the sea. All of this is in dispute, though, although there really isn't a strong alternate theory, just to give you all the necessary disclaimers and updates on scholarly debates. 
check out the Wikipedia entry on Aphrodite if you'd like links to the scholars who make these various arguments so that you can evaluate them for yourself. So that's Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. She rises from the sea foam created by Ornos's severed balls falling into the sea. You can see how well this works for Martin's basic mythical astronomy concept, that of a moon goddess being slain by a comet falling into the sea, after which she rises and transforms like Aphrodite rising from the sea. The sea also serves as a metaphor for the Weirwood as we know, and indeed Nissanissa dies and goes into the green sea just as the moon meteors fall into the sea. She also seems to be reborn from the Weirwood sea as Aphrodite is born from the sea, and here we should think of the symbolism of Lady Stoneheart, who was reborn from the green fork of the trident and then took up residence in a green seer-like cave full of weirwood roots. Backing up a bit, the very concept of Azor Ahai as a hero reborn in the sea is simply Martin pointing at the Venus component of the Azor Ahai myth. Lightbringer is synonymous with Venus, as well as the word Lucifer, and so the rebirth of Azor Ahai, who is reborn to wield Lightbringer, is akin to Venus rising from the sea. Azor Ahai is also resurrected through the Weirwood Net, it seems to us, which Martin imagines as a green sea, and so in this way you can see how nicely Morningstar mythology dovetails with the idea of going into and coming out of the green sea of the Weirwoods. We've already identified the falling moon goddess and all other moon meteor symbols, all the Lightbringer symbols basically, as drawing on Morningstar and Evenstar mythology, since it's right in the name, Lucifer means Lightbringer, and as we have continued our research, we've come to see that all the Azor Ahai, Nissa Nissa, and Lightbringer stuff seems inextricably linked to the Weirwoods. Ergo, I thought it was worthwhile to circle back to lovely Venus one more time and show how Martin has joined that symbolism with the Green Sea, Green Seer metaphor. The overarching symbolic themes that we'll be discussing today will be dragons going into the Weirwood Net and Nissa Nissa merging with and becoming the Green Sea of the Weirwood Net, and Daenerys will be the dragon and the Nissa Nissa performing the symbolism in most of the scenes we'll examine. She's a moon goddess turned morning star, and she's falling into and rising from the sea pretty much constantly. But before we throw Danny into the ocean, let's take a look at the famous nod to Aphrodite that George slips into one of Danny's A Dance with Dragons chapters, just in case you haven't heard it in a while. This is Danny asking her handmaidens to send Dario to her. Send him up at once, and I will have no more need of you this evening. I shall be safe with Dario. Oh, and send Eri and Jiqui, if you would be so good, and Missande. I need to change, to make myself beautiful. She said as much to her handmaids when they came. What does your grace wish to wear? asked Missande. Starlight and sea foam, Danny thought. A wisp of silk that leaves my left breast bare for Daario's delight. Oh, and flowers for my hair. When first they met, the captain brought her flowers every day, all the way from Yunkai to Marine. Bring the gray linen gown with the pearls on the bodice. Oh, and my white lion's pelt. She always felt safer wrapped in Drogo's lion skin. As we just saw, the classic translation of Aphrodite is sea foam slash bright wanderer, and Danny wants to wear starlight and sea foam to make herself beautiful. Danny is referred to as the most beautiful woman in the world by two of her suitors, Quentin and Victarion, so the Aphrodite reference really sticks. Consider also the flowers in Danny's hair. 
It's basically like the flower crown worn by the woman named the Queen of Love and Beauty at a Westeros attorney, especially since it's her hunky love interest, Dario, who likes to give her flowers, as the tourney champion bestows the floral crown to whomever he chooses as the Queen of Love and Beauty. But Aphrodite is the goddess of love and beauty, and she's associated with springtime and the growth of vegetation. So we can see the logic in George giving Danny a symbolic queen of love and beauty flower crown when comparing her to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. She wants to leave one breast bare for Dario. That's an obvious nod to the bear your breast to me part of the Lightbringer Nissa Nissa legend, and the gray and white attire festooned with pearls is nice lunar symbolism to go along with it. In other words, Danny's a moon maiden waiting to become a morning star, and the moon goddess does that by coupling with her hunky sun and his big explosive comet. All right, let's say our thank yous. Thanks to Stanley Black for our amazing intro music, and to John Walsh for our flamenco guitar music. And don't forget you can find more of John's lovely playing on the John Walsh Guitar on YouTube channel. Thanks to Baal the Bard for performing the vocal readings of the text today. And thanks to San Rixian for painting an amazing Danny on her silver seahorse during our live stream this past weekend, which you can find at lucifermeanslightbringer.com embedded in the text version of this essay. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for sharing his world with us. Thanks to all of our listeners and subscribers for being part of our community and sharing mythical astronomy with all your friends, as I'm sure you do. And thanks most of all to our Patreon patrons, who bring this show to you with their generous and steadfast support. By the way, look out for new 13-minute YouTube videos on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel very soon. They will be called LML in 13, and they will essentially be boiled down and condensed versions of some of our main mythical astronomy ideas. I'm hoping these bite-sized bits might bring our show to more people, so I will really appreciate it if you guys can share those around. The first one will be called Dawn is the Original Ice, Part 1, and it should actually be up by the time you hear this. All right, let's get started. Melting into the sea. This section is brought to you by our newest dragon patron, Malaris the Weir Dragon, whose scales are white as bone and whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are as red as blood. Malaris, who is native to Stigai, is the first known Stygian dragon to leave that corpse city by the heart of the shadow in over five millennia. It is rumored that Malaris is inhabited by the spirit of a long-vanished sorceress from Ashai called Melanie Lot 7. The vast majority of Danny's green sea symbolism happens in the actual green Dothraki Sea. But when I look back at her first two chapters, I actually did find that, right from the beginning, Danny appears to us as a sort of watery goddess. Her first chapter opens like this. Her brother held up the gown for her inspection. This is beauty. Touch it. Go on. Caress the fabric. Danny touched it. The cloth was so smooth that it seemed to run through her fingers like water. It's a beautiful gown made of water. Excellent. Very practical. After this comes the cringeworthy scene where Viserys gropes his sister's breasts, twisting one of her nipples painfully. This is showing right from the start that this is an abusive relationship, and it's also a reference to Nissa Nissa bearing her breasts to Azor High and being stabbed by Lightbringer, just as with all the other times that Viserys does something like this to her. It's basically the unkind version of the scene with Dario that we just quoted in the intro, where Danny wants to bear her breasts to him. Danny's next move is to take a bath. 
I feel you, Danny. Viserys' scenes make us all want to bathe. This is the famous scalding hot bath scene that you probably remember from the TV show, the one where she shows a bit of her future ability to tolerate heat and fire. As we discussed last time, Danny takes a lot of baths in pivotal scenes, including a couple of fiery baths, and here is the line from this one in the first chapter. The water was scalding hot, but Daenerys did not flinch or cry out. She liked the heat. It made her feel clean. Besides, her brother had often told her that it was never too hot for a Targaryen. Ours is the house of the dragon, he would say. The fire is in our blood. So she's given a gown made of water, takes a hot bath, and afterward, the girl brushed her hair until it shone like molten silver. Not only is this symbolism wet and hot, I caramba. It's also just generally evocative of silvery moon goddess Mystique. She even checks out her molten silver hair in a silvered looking glass, which is conveniently round like a full silver moon. In her second chapter, which includes her wedding, we get this passage. Afterward, she could not say how far or how long they had ridden, but it was full dark when they stopped at a grassy place beside a small stream. Drogo swung off his horse and lifted her down from hers. She felt as fragile as glass in his hands, her limbs as weak as water. This is the scene where Drogo and Danny first have sex, and it's notable that it occurs by a stream. And look, Danny's made of water. Glass, too, and since she's a dragon, this makes me think of dragon glass a little bit, although I think Martin is mainly using the word glass here for the more conventional purpose of portraying Danny as feeling nervous and weak. The watery legs description works well to that end, too, but also contributes to the other watery associations we find all around Danny. Is George making a tall drink of water joke here, since she's like glass and water? I mean, Drogo's definitely a tall drink of water, so maybe Danny is a short glass of water? Anyways, people made of water can melt. Moon maidens especially, we expect them to melt. We just saw Danny with molten silver hair, which sounds pretty melty. And in the last Weirwood Compendium episode, we saw Danny submerse herself in the green grass sea and become one with it, losing herself in the green. And that's kind of like melting, certainly. The concept there seemed to be that Nissa Nissa dies and then not only enters the realm of the Green Seers, but in some sense merges with and becomes the thing we think of as the Weirbidnet. Melting Moon Maidens are expressing the exact same concept. We've seen this idea expressed using the symbol of blood a couple of times. You'll recall Jorah's fine dissertation on the various kinds of grasses in the world, including that bit about the Dothraki Sea turning into a sea of blood when it blooms. I interpreted that as a reference to the shed blood of the slain moon maiden entering the Green Sea, which of course amounts to Nissa Nissa merging with the Green Sea of the Weirbudnet after she's slain. To show you why I made that interpretation, we looked at two scenes which take place in the Green Dothraki Sea, where Danny symbolically has her blood boiled and melted. There was the dragon dream where she could feel her flesh sear and blacken and slough away, could feel her blood boil and turn to steam. And then there was the alchemical wedding, where she had the urge to run to Drogo in the pyre and take him inside her one last time, the fire melting the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever. These are both Lightbringer forging scenes in the Green Sea that bring death transformation for Danny the Moon Maiden. I mean, one is the bloody alchemical wedding, and the other is a dream of being burnt by a dragon, which would essentially be the moon's eye view of the oncoming comet, more or less. In both scenes, Nissa Nissa is melted and her blood is specifically mentioned. 
Heck, the Lightbringer myth itself suggests Nissanissa's blood is being boiled and melted. Nissanissa famously got stabbed by a white-hot Lightbringer, of course, and elsewhere, in the pages of the Jade Compendium, actually, we hear about what happens when you get stabbed with Lightbringer. Once Azora High fought a monster. When he thrust the sword through the belly of the beast, its blood began to boil. Smoke and steam poured from its mouth. Its eyes melted and dribbled down its cheeks, and its body burst into flame. Nissa Nissa certainly isn't a monster, but you can imagine the same thing happening to our poor moon maiden when she was stabbed with white-hot Lightbringer. Thus, we can see the idea of Nissa Nissa melting is at least hinted at right in the original tale of Lightbringer's forging. Perhaps the most clear expression of this symbolic bleeding and melting moon maiden idea was the scene involving Ygritte that we found two episodes ago in Weirwood Compendium 6, The Devil and the Deep Green Sea. That was Jon Snow's dream of swimming in a hot pool beneath the heart tree of Winterfell's Godswood, where Ygritte's flesh melts and dissolves into the pool. You know nothing, Jon Snow, she whispered, her skin dissolving in the hot water, the flesh beneath sloughing off her bones until only skull and skeleton remained, and the pool bubbled thick and red. Ygritte, as we know, is a terrific red-headed weirwood goddess, and as a spearwife, she even brings that very cool Meliai ash tree nymph symbolism to life, since you'll recall from the Venus of the Woods episode that those Meliai ash tree nymphs armed their sons with ashwood spears from their sacred ash trees. The Meliai were also created by Oronos's chopped-off balls, by the way, just like Aphrodite, so there's even a Venus connection to the Meliai. They're something like half-siblings to Aphrodite. Ygritte's name also contains a clear allusion to the root word of Yggdrasil, Y-G-G, and Ygritte may be intended to suggest an Yggrite, since that would seem to be a good description of the idea of killing Nissa Nissa as a part of some sort of magic rite to allow Azor Ahai to enter the Weirwood Net. You may also recall that there is an ancient Ironborn myth where they seem to refer to Weirwoods as the Demon Tree Ig, Y-G-G, which is essentially Martin tapping us on the shoulder and making sure we associate the Weirwoods with Yggdrasil. And thus it's no coincidence that he named one of our Weirwood goddess Nissanissa figures after Old Iggy. Two other Weirwood goddess figures, Asha Greyjoy and the wildling spearwife named Rowan, are both named after the ash tree, which is what Yggdrasil is, a great ash tree. And this provides further context for Ygritte as Ygrite. So, here is Ygritte, in front of Martin's version of the egg tree, herself looking a bit like a weirwood anyway, with her red hair, and then she melts, with only her bones and blood remaining, and the blood fills the hot pool. Not only is she melting into the weirwood pool, we know that blood and bone is their frequently used description of the weirwoods, so the idea of her turning into a weirwood is suggested in more than one way here. As with Danny's various submersions and meltings and boilings in the green Dothraki Sea, the message seems to be that Nissa Nissa, when slain, becomes one with the green sea, so to speak. She turns to blood and dissolves into the green sea. I especially like the way that this Ygritte scene unites the bathing symbolism with the bleeding and melting symbolism. And again, I would suggest that all of Danny's symbolically rich, scalding hot baths are getting at the same idea, hence her molten silver hair. We see Daenerys' silver hair again play the role of a melting moon when she takes a bath after Rhaegos' stillbirth near the end of A Game of Thrones. This would also be right before she walks into the pyre and wakes the dragons. 
When she was clean, her handmaids helped her from the water. Eri and Jiqui fanned her dry, while Doria brushed her hair until it fell like a river of liquid silver down her back. Notice that her hair is not only like melting silver, but like a falling river of liquid silver, a molten silver waterfall. One imagines a moon melting right out of the sky and dripping down to earth. Melty, melty. There's even a third matching line about her hair being like wet silver, and that comes when Danny hears the story of the destruction of the second moon while sitting in a bath. It's nestled right into the folds of the moon dragon myth itself, that's right. Silvery wet hair tumbled across her eyes as Danny turned her head, curious. The moon? He told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi, the Lysini girl said. And you know the rest. Take note of the word tumbled to imply the wet, silvery hair falling from the sky or melting across the face of the moon maiden Daenerys. This melting moon maiden language is nicely paired here with talk of a moon that's been scalded and cracked open like an egg and also with Daenerys the moon maiden sitting in the scalding hot bath. If you notice, the bath she sits in right before waking the dragons was specifically called scalding hot, previewing Danny's role as the moon egg that was scalded by the sun that she plays when she walks into the pyre and wakes the dragons. With all these rivers of molten silver dripping off Danny's head and into the bath, that bath might soon be a silver sea. A very small one, and a very small joke, but it is true that the Dothraki grass sea used to be an inland sea which was called the Silver Sea, and it was huge. A silver sea is an obvious symbol for the moon itself, especially when we have Danny the Moon Maiden's silver hair melting like that in these three scenes. More on the Silver Sea in a moment, and I'd also point you towards the awesome new video from Crowfood's daughter on the Silver Sea, which you can find on the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. But for now, think about the Silver Sea as a very large version of the reflective moon pool in Bravos, which is itself a larger version of the silvered looking glass in Danny's first chapter. Consider the hair symbolism of the Nissanissa maidens that we've studied. Most of them actually have red, kissed-by-fire hair, which is a great way to symbolize the burning of the second moon. It's also a great way to create the image of a burning tree person that alludes to the weirwoods, whose red canopy looks like blood and fire. Danny doesn't have kissed-by-fire hair, but rather the silvery-gold hair of Valeria. But then that's the point of describing her silver hair as molten or liquid silver. It's simply a different way of using hair symbolism to show a burning and melting moon maiden. And that's just symbolism. You'll recall that there are two scenes where Danny's hair actually burns off. Talk about kissed by fire, that's making the symbolism a little too literal. Danny's hair burns off both at the alchemical wedding and during the escape from the Myrenes fighting pit on Drogon's back. Both scenes which symbolize the burning of the moon to forge Lightbringer dragons. One scene happens in the Dothraki Sea, and the other happens as Danny is escaping into the Dothraki Sea. And so, once again, we can see George using the green Dothraki Sea as a backdrop to show that all these moon maidens aren't just melting, but melting into the green sea of the Weirwood Net. At the end of Danny's first chapter, Illyrio guides her and Viserys to Cal Drogo's manse which is the temporary home the Pentashi happily keep for him when he comes here, part of their strategy for avoiding strife with the Dothraki. There we find some pretty great silvery moon symbolism. They stepped past the eunuch into a pillared courtyard overgrown in pale ivy. Moonlight painted the leaves in shades of bone and silver as the guests drifted among them. 
This would be the first of many instances of Martin giving us the moon silvering things in its cold moonlight, usually white things like weirwood bark or gold things like Jamie's hair and armor at the Battle of the Whispering Wood. For example, when Arya practices her sword play by night in the Harrenhal Godswood, it says, The light of the moon painted the limbs of the weirwood silvery white. In fact, the pale ivy here at Drogo's manse is painted in shades of silver and bone, and of course bone white is by far the most common description of weirwood wood. How much wood could a weirwood wear if a weirwood could wear wood? It's a good question. Of course, we know it makes a ton of sense to see moon and weirwood colors appearing together, since weirwoods have a ton of lunar symbolism, as we've seen from the moon door at the Eyrie, the house of black and white weirwood door, and that black gate weirwood face door that glows like milk and moonlight. The occasion for this gathering is actually Drogo and Danny's engagement. To me, the silver and bone in the moonlight ivy here seems like a subtle way to tie Azor High and Nissa Nissa's wedding, symbolized by Danny and Drogo's wedding, to the Weirwoods and to the moon. Their wedding and consummation actually takes place in the green grass right outside Pentos, on the edge of the green sea, in other words, so it's all fairly consistent. Or simply look at it this way. Drogo, the solar king, found his Nissa Nissa among the silver and bone foliage of the garden on the edge of the green sea. If the pale ivy looked painted in silver and bone by the moonlight, how do you think freaking Daenerys looked? Like a silvery white tree goddess, I'd imagine. Moving on to Danny's second chapter, we find a nice introduction of the Dothraki's status as honorary sea people. A mighty earthen ramp had been raised amid the grass palaces, and there Danny was seated beside Caldrogo above the seething sea of Dothraki. The Dothraki are sea people who come from the Dothraki Sea. I mean, they did choose Jason Momoa, the Caldrogo actor, to play Aquaman, did they not? Case closed. They're seamen. On a more serious note, the Greek sea god Poseidon does have a very strong association with horses. So it's likely George drew some amount of inspiration from Poseidon when he thought of equating horse lords and sea lords. As for those horse lords of the great grass sea, many have noticed the Dothraki's philosophical similarities with the ironborn. The Dothraki do not sow, like the Greyjoys, even believing farming to be some sort of defilement of Mother Earth. Viserys says all these savages know how to do is steal the things that better men have built and kill. And excepting for the bigoted and ignorant use of the word savage, which is intended to make us see Viserys as constantly shitty, he does have a point. The Dothraki do indeed steal everything, almost as a point of pride, just as the Ironborn take pride in paying the iron price, which just means stealing, and they even cast shame on paying coin for nice things, as we saw with Theon and Balon. Obviously, both cultures emphasize warrior strength and tend to follow strength. And as we're about to discuss, the Dothraki are at the center of a lot of conflation between horses and boats. I mean, if you consider boats to be wooden horses, as Drogo does, then the Ironborn are kind of like horse lords of the sea, just like the Dothraki, only not like the Dothraki. Who knows, maybe if Danny and Victarion can work out something to use the Ironborn ships to ferry Danny's army to Westeros, we'll get some amusing interplay between Victarion and some Dothraki, where they try to explain why it is that you can't sail a longship across the Great Grass Sea. <laughs> we can only hope. So, to sum up, Nissa Nissa is a moon goddess, and when she dies, she melts into the green sea of the Weirwood Net. 
That's essentially what all these various metaphors about bathing, melting, and burning are about. Danny and her silver hair melting into the green Dothraki Sea, while at the same time assimilating with the lords of that sea, is an especially watery version of that metaphor, and it makes a great counterbalance to all the fiery, wake-the-dragon symbolism which burns hot in Danny's dreams and then explodes to life at the alchemical wedding. You will recall, however, that even on the first go-around analyzing the alchemical wedding, way back in Bloodstone Compendium Number 1, we did note the many watery descriptions of the fire there, such as when the dusk shimmered as the air itself seemed to liquefy from the heat. Yes, it's the lake of fire. Where do bad folks go when they die? Oh, sorry, sorry, okay. You'll also recall that from the beginning of the Weirwood Compendium, we have interpreted one aspect of the sea dragon myth to be a memory of a giant flaming piece of moon, a bleeding star with a fiery tail, falling into the sea. Thus you can see that this seemingly new idea of Nissanissa dying and going into the Weirwood Net was already incubating in the early mythical astronomy theories. Ravenous Reader's Green Sea Metaphor does an exquisite job of unifying the various ideas about fiery moon meteor swords and dragons plunging into the sea with the idea of dying Nissanissa bringing her life and fire to the Weirwood Net and allows us to see them as two sides of the same coin. At the end of the day, Nissanissa was sacrificed around the time that the moon meteors fell, which is, of course, right in the original Lightbringer myth, which has Nissanissa's death cry cracking the face of the moon. A silver seahorse for a silver sea. This section is brought to you by the newest member of the Long Night's Watch, Tin Jack of the Dragonglass Shield, Ghost Hunter of the Haunted Forest, and Righteous Hand of the Snow Owl. By Questing Beast, the Anger Ranger, Keeper of the Dragon's Wrath, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Virgo and Libra. And by John Blackheel of House Thompson. Wielder of a Valyrian steel tray of fish food and Kraken tacos, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Ophiuchus. The other big event that happens at the wedding that pertains to our lines of investigation today is the gifting of the silver horse to Danny. That's where we're going to kick this essay into a full gallop, and for those of you who like House Valerian, well, you're going to be very happy. There's a lot to unpack here. And that's a very dramatic understatement. So strap in, or saddle up, or whatever metaphor works for you. This paragraph is the tip of a truly titanic iceberg of symbolism. A silver glacier, if you will. She was a young filly, spirited and splendid. Danny knew just enough about horses to know that this was no ordinary animal. There was something about her that took the breath away. She was gray as the winter sea with a mane like silver smoke. Hesitantly, she reached out and stroked the horse's neck, ran her fingers through the silver of her mane. Caldrogo said something in Dothraki and Maester Illyrio translated, Silver for the silver of your hair, the call says. All right, so there are three different and completely awesome lines of symbolism going on here, at least. One pertains to the Grey King and the Sea Dragon's Fire, one to the idea of seahorses and House Valerion, and the third one to Odin's Grey Horse called Sleipnir. Naturally, there is some overlap, because they all relate to the idea of dragons in the Green Sea of the Weirwood Net, and specifically to Nissa Nissa's dissolution into the Green Sea. We'll start with the Grey King stuff. The phrase, grey as a winter sea, should definitely put us in mind of the Grey King, since that is exactly the phrase used to describe his hair and beard, as well as that of the Merlin King statue in White Harbor, which is, of course, a variation of the same archetypal figure. 
So the horse's body is like a gray sea, but the horse's mane is silver smoke, and smoke only comes from fire. So there must be fire in the gray winter sea. Something fiery must have fallen into the sea, if you catch my drift. Indeed, as we just discussed, the Grey King is known for acquiring the living fire of Naga the Sea Dragon from the sea, before turning as grey as a winter sea himself. And we know that one meaning of this myth is that a fiery meteor dragon fell into the sea. Now, while the sea and smoke description of the horse implies the idea of fiery things falling into the ocean, Danny spells it out when she hops on the horse, because she is the fiery moon maiden. Since it's the horse's body that looks like the winter sea, and its mane that is like silver smoke, we can even see the horse's back as the horizon line of the ocean, with Danny on the back of the horse appearing half-submersed below the water, like a sinking moon, silver smoke roiling from the waterline all around her. Of course, we know that all this sea dragon and meteors falling into the sea stuff is also talking about dragon people going into the green sea of the weirwoods, and that's implied here as well in the gray as winter seahorse's description. When we consider the fact that Drogo compares the silver smoke-like mane of the horse to Danny's molten silver hair, we can imagine the horse's mane as molten silver dripping down into its gray as a winter sea body. This is simply more Nissanissa dissolution language, comparable to Danny losing herself in the Dothraki Sea, or Ygritte melting into the Winterfell Pond before the Heart Tree, or Danny's molten hair appearing to melt into the bath, and so on. It's Nissanissa becoming the sea. And yes, I did just call the horse a gray as a winter sea horse. A seahorse. Just the thing to ride around the Dothraki Sea, right? The Dothraki steeds are automatically a kind of seahorse, and that they run on the waves of the grass sea. And you may recall Danny observing the Dothraki as being as fluid as centaurs, as if they were watery centaurs. Martin is encouraging us to see the connection by describing the silver horse's coat as a winter sea. The fact that seahorses appear to fly through the water on fins that look a little bit like wings plays right into the green sea wordplay, since a green seer is said to fly when he does astral projection through the weirwood trees. One of the preferred habitats for seahorses actually turns out to be seagrass beds. So putting a seahorse in the Dothraki grass sea works visually as well. And now you'll always picture Danny riding a seahorse around in the tall grasses. This horse, which is the color of a gray sea, is hereafter always referred to as her silver. So we can even say that it's a silver seahorse. That is, of course, no accident of wordplay either, since, as we mentioned... The green grassland sea that we call the Dothraki Sea used to be a huge inland sea called the Silver Sea. It was ruled by the divine-sounding fisher queens who lived in a floating palace, which makes them floating mermaid goddess figures, just like Daenerys in the Dothraki Sea. Those fisher queen links only emphasize Danny's mermaid queen aquatic goddess symbolism, and now that Danny is swimming in this formerly silver sea, she has a silver seahorse. We can even say that Danny riding the horse is kind of like floating in a silver sea itself, and not just because its coat looks like a sea. It's because the horse is also called Danny's silver mare. But the Latin word mar or mare, M-A-R or M-E-R, means sea, such as in the words marine or mermaid or stella maris. And thus, silver mare could easily be interpreted as silver sea. I mean, Martin says straight out that the horse looks like a sea and like silver, but it's fun to find the extra wordplay angle. A silver mare is a silver sea. 
One of our newly minted Long Night's Watch patrons, Tin Jack of the Dragonglass Shield, Ghost Hunter of the Haunted Forest and Righteous Hand of the Snow Owl, chimes in with a great observation here. The dark spots on the moon are called lunar maria, which is the plural form of lunar mare, because early astronomers mistook these dark spots on the moon as seas. You see how naturally all of this symbolism works together. The silver seahorse is a silver mare, which kind of implies it as a silver sea and even a moon sea. In A Storm of Swords, before Danny takes Marine, Martin actually teases us by showing us the silver seahorse running in the actual wet sea, the one made of water. Suddenly, she could not stand the close confines of the pavilion another moment. I want to feel the wind on my face and smell the sea. Missande, she called, have my silver saddled, your own mount as well. She wants to smell the sea, so she has her silver saddled. You need a seahorse to ride the waves of the sea, of course. Then a moment later, we read, The tide was coming in, and the surf foamed about the feet of her silver. She could see her ship standing out to sea. Balerion floated nearest, the great cog once known as Sedulion. Her sails furled. Further out were the galleys Meraxes and Vagar, formerly Joso's prank and summer sun. Aha, it's a little Aphrodite sea foam. Very nice. Just to make sure we know this is all about stars falling into the sea and goddesses rising from the sea. It's the surf foaming around the feet of her silver. So maybe George, a huge comic books fan, is making a silver surfer joke here. Who knows? More to the point, Danny's silver horse is now actually in the sea. So it's a true silver seahorse at last. If you look to your left... If you look to your left, you'll see the sea dragon boats floating out at harbor. Sea dragon boats are, of course, very similar to the idea of a seahorse in that they both symbolize vehicles that you can use to ride the waves of the green sea. And so we see them side by side. With all this talk of silver seahorses and sea dragon boats, surely you are jumping out of your chair to say, Ooh, ooh, House Valerion! And you're right, clever mythhead. The sigil of House Valerion of Driftmark, a house with the blood of old Valeria in their veins, is indeed a silver seahorse on a field of sea green. The Valerions are dragon people who became silver seahorse people, swimming in the green sea, in other words. Just as Danny the dragon rides her silver seahorse in the green Dothraki Sea, formerly the Silver Sea of the Fisher Queens. As a matter of fact... Takes deep breath. Basically, 100% of House Valerion symbolism seems designed to demonstrate the idea of green seer dragons. Besides the dragon to silver seahorse transformation, we have the fact that the Valerions are basically the heart of the Targaryen royal fleet of sea dragon boats. And I know they're ships, I just like to say boats, so take it easy, man. Loosen the old collar a bit. Say boats, it's fun. In any case, this is from the World of Ice and Fire. He was a scion of House Valerian, a family of old and storied Valerian heritage who had come to Westeros before the Targaryens, as the histories agree, and who often provided the bulk of the royal fleet. So many Valerians served as Lord Admiral and Master of Ships that it was, at times, almost considered a hereditary office. The he in this paragraph is by far the most famous member of the House of the Seahorse, and by far the most famous mariner in all of the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. And that is, of course, the sea snake, Corlys Valerion. The sea snake is named for one of his ships, 
And a boat named Sea Snake is already a fine sea dragon boat symbol in its own right, even before you consider the fact that its captain is a blood-of-the-dragon person with a ton of green seer symbolism. A sea dragon sailing a sea dragon. That's what Corliss is. And of course, his most famous voyages were to the Jade Sea, a match for the sea green of his sigil. And that makes Corliss a green dragon as well as a sea dragon. So he slides very nicely into all the Regal and Jade Sea related stuff from the last couple Weird Compendium episodes, where we saw that green dragon and sea dragon ideas are constantly overlapping and intertwining. Because, of course, they're really sending the same message about green seer dragons. In addition to general nautical prowess and the many Valerians serving as master of ships and Lord Admiral, the ruling lord of the family bears the title Lord of the Tides. Of course, the real lord of the tides is the moon, which causes and regulates the Earth's ocean tides, and accordingly, the silver seahorse seems to represent the silver moon. In general, the Valerians seem to be moon characters pretty consistently. I mentioned a moment ago that seahorses, cute little buggers that they are, swim upright and almost appear to fly through the water. A couple of other notes on seahorse anatomy. They have a kind of bony skin armor. The seahorse Wikipedia page does actually call it armor, so I'm not stretching the truth here. And together with wings and the curling tail, you can see how you might interpret a seahorse as a cross between a horse very tiny bug-eyed fish, and armored sea dragons. Most depictions of the Valerian sigil play up the dragon-like look of the seahorse, which makes sense, of course, since they are dragon-blooded seahorses. As it happens, horses and snakes are the two animals that dragons are most compared to, such as in this great line from Quentin's Dragon Tamer chapter of A Dance with Dragons. The dragon's head was larger than a horse's, and the neck stretched on and on, uncoiling like some great green serpent as the head rose, until those two glowing bronze eyes were staring down at him. That's far from the only passage like that. Snake and dragon comparisons abound, and the dragon's heads are compared to horses on other occasions as well. This passage is kind of the best because it features a green dragon turned serpent with a horse head, so it's basically a kind of remix on the dragonish seahorse idea. Speaking of green dragons, House Valerion and the Moon, consider Corliss's granddaughter, Bela Targaryen, daughter of the rogue prince Daemon Targaryen and Lena Valerion, and the rider of the green dragon Moondancer, though only as a young teenager. You'll recall Bela's heroic dragon rider versus dragon rider battle with King Aegon II and Sunfire, which killed Moondancer. That's a tremendous sun-kills-moon scene, which signifies Bela's Nissa Nissa moment. Nissa Nissa figures always go into the Green Sea after such events, and accordingly, Bela eventually goes into the Green Sea by marrying back into House Valerion. In particular, Bela married Alan Valerion, who would have been at best her third cousin, but probably further removed than that. And it is from Bela and Alan that the current House Valerion descends. Analyzing this lineage in terms of sigil-based symbolism, we can say that Bela's story follows the symbolic story of House Valerion, more or less. Born to the House of the Blood of the Dragon, Bela rode the Green Dragon and then became a seahorse, swimming in the Green Sea. Although Moondancer and Bela didn't crash into the water after they had that duel with Sunfire over Dragonstone, like so many other drowning Moon Maidens and Moon Dragons, Bela herself was, in a manner of speaking, saved by the waters. After she crashed and survived, a mean guy named Sir Alfred Broom wanted to execute her. 
while a brave and true man named Sir Marston Waters stopped him and carried Bela to the maester instead, saving her life. Saved by the waters, yes. We can also observe that Dragonstone, where Bela and Moondancer landed, is basically the archetypal template for the idea of a dragon meteor plunging into the sea. It's a smoking dragon rock in the sea, which gives the exact same visual image as Danny riding her gray as a winter seahorse, with Danny as the dragon rock sitting half below the waterline and with smoke coming out of the sea all around her. There's a nice Moons of Ice and Fire clue with Bela and her twin sister Reyna that's worth mentioning, although it's a tiny bit of an aside. So check this out. We can tell from her Moon Dancer and Sunfire fight that Bela should be the Fire Moon figure. And thus, her sister Reyna should be the Ice Moon. And indeed, Reyna marries into House Hightower, which has white dragon and white tower symbolism. And the most famous Hightower in the story was the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Gerald Hightower, which brings the heavy other symbolism of the White Sword Knights of the Kingsguard into the mix. Even more clear is the symbolism of what Reyna did during the Dance of the Dragons while her sister Bela was getting into a dragon fight with the sun. She was safely tucked away in the icy eerie. That's right. Reyna played the dragon locked in ice and even brought three dragon eggs to the eerie to complete the visual image. Bela stays at Dragonstone, a fire moon symbol, and Reyna goes to the eerie, an ice moon symbol, very like the pattern we saw with the wives of Aegon the Conqueror, where Rhaenys, the fire moon maiden, went to Dorne and died, while Visenya, who would be the ice moon maiden, went to the Vale twice. Reyna's dragons tell the same story, too. Her first dragon dies immediately after hatching, perhaps indicative of some sort of other-like baby sacrifice symbolism. But eventually, Reyna bonds with the very last Targaryen dragon, one of the three eggs that she brought to the Vale. The dragon actually hatches in the Icy Vale, making it a perfect dragon-locked-in-ice symbolism, or I guess it would be a dragon-locked-in-ice awakening from the ice symbol. And it even has a great dragon-locked-in-ice name, this last Targaryen dragon. See if you can search your memory banks for it. I'll give you just a quick second. Yes, that's right. The name of the dragon is Morning. That's right. The last dragon is called Morning, invoking the idea of Dawn, the Sword of the Morning, which is believed to be the original Ice of House Stark by some, such as myself. But setting aside the Dawn equals Ice idea, the waking dragon locked in ice is pretty much equivalent to the Sword of the Morning figure, the one who brings the dawn. And here you should be thinking of Jon Snow. Morning, by the way, the dragon, is a pale pink hatchling with black horns and crest, so one imagines the pale pink of a dawn sky, or perhaps the pale red flame of the sword dawn, burning with magical fire? Who knows? I'm always on Team Dawn Burns White or Blue, until it burns red, but there are some who think it burns red, so shout out to you guys. We aren't done with House Valerion, seahorses, Daenerys, or fiery things falling into the sea by any means. However, now we're going to shift the focus over to four silver dragons that tie into all of these things, and there's simply too much Valerion seahorse goodness to be contained by one section. So, time for a section break. That'll be four silver dragons, ma'am. This section is brought to you by two of our dragon patrons, Bronze Steries of the Lily White Scales and Bronze Horns, Wing Bones, and Spinal Crest, a wise old dragon who teaches the young dragons, and Vesperies the Nightbringer, the Shadowfire Dragon whose scales are dark as smoke, 
whose horns, wingbones, and spinal crest are the color of molten silver, and whose eyes are two black moons. I can't help but notice that Danny's silver horse, having a coat like a winter sea and a mane like silver smoke, kind of reminds me of a silver dragon called Sea Smoke. And he's actually a dragon described alternately as gray and white, pale gray, and silver gray. I mean, those are basically the same descriptions as Danny's seahorse. Gray and silver, sea and smoke. Even better, Sea Smoke is no random dragon. He was ridden by a fellow named Adam Valerian. Aha! And Adam, well, he was no random Valerian either. He was the brother of Alan Valerian, who married Bela, rider of Moondancer. Wow, right? Danny's silver horse looks like the sea and like smoke, and plays massively on the seahorse symbolism of House Valerian, and then House Valerian has a dragon named Sea Smoke. Danny is a silver dragon riding a silver seahorse, and Adam Valerian is a silver seahorse riding a silver dragon. Ah! Those are uh, mind-exploding sounds, of course. As ever, it gets worse when we consider the sea dragon meteor symbolism. A dragon called Sea Smoke is once again creating that visual depiction of a dragon meteor submersing in the sea and causing smoke. Just like Dragonstone, a smoking rock in the sea, or Daenerys when she rides her smoking silver seahorse. And yes, doomed Valeria, now covered by the smoking sea, is getting at much the same idea. The doom is obviously a strong parallel to the fire moon destruction, and now it's a sunken land of fire partially covered by a smoking sea. In other words, sea smoke and Danny's horse. They match not only in terms of descriptive language, gray and silver, sea and smoke, but also in terms of symbolic meaning, sea dragon meteors falling into the sea. And although we love talking about meteors and the tsunamis that they cause, the more important layer of meaning to the sea dragon and the idea of drowning moon meteors is the idea of dragon people going into the green sea and becoming green seers. We know Martin is using Danny's silver to depict her as riding her seahorse in the green sea, and wouldn't you know it, the Adam Valerian sea smoke green seer symbolism gets dialed up to 11 during the Dance of the Dragons. Yes, 11. It's one more. That's right. My eyes kind of popped out of my head when I read that Adam Valerian took sea smoke to the friggin' Isle of Faces to consult with the green men during the dance before raising an army from the Riverlands and then leading them to Tumbleton to battle Ulf the White and Silverwing, amongst others. Say what? I know, yes. Though the maesters dismiss it as an obviously false tale, it is indeed said that Adam Valerian took sea smoke to the Isle of Faces to kick it with the green men before raising an army. The idea of raising an army from the lands watered by the trident and... From the River Lords, as it is written in The Princess and the Queen, is suggestive of raising an army of green men from the Green Sea. Men from the Trident, if you will. Obviously, George couldn't have Adam actually storm Tumbleton with actual green men, but by sending him to the green men and then giving him an army of Riverlanders from the Trident, he's kind of sending that message. We also have to back up and simply appreciate the symbolic ramifications of sending a dragon and a dragon lord to the Isle of Faces. It's creating the well-known stabbing the god's eye symbol, since the Isle of Faces correlates to the moon, both of which represent the pupil of the great eye, and the dragon is essentially flying into the pupil. 
but this is also a symbol of dragons and dragon lords going into the Weirwood Net, since nothing represents the Weirwood Net better than the Green Isle of Faces, which is portrayed to us as basically an island full of Weirwoods. It's especially notable because it's a Valerion dragon lord who carries the green seer symbolism of his sigil with him. And then, when you recall how the dragon sea smoke parallels Danny's silver seahorse, you can see that George has essentially tripled down on the dragons going into the green sea symbolism here. Another way we know that this is an important idea is because George has mirrored it pretty much beat for beat with another silver dragon, Silverwing. Silverwing is most famous for being the mount of Good Queen Alisan, but was, as I mentioned, later ridden by Ulf the White during the Dance of the Dragons. Ulf is one of the two betrayers of Tumbleton, and it was he and Hugh the Hammer that Adam Valerion and his army were coming to fight. Ulf the White is an interesting name. Ulf sounds like elf or perhaps wolf. And he's also known as Ulf the Sot because he's a drunk, but that implies him as drinking the fire of the gods. Ulf did in fact die by poisoned wine, so we actually get the whole drinking the fire of the gods and dying routine, a la Arion Brightflame. So here's where Silverwing echoes sea smoke going to the Isle of Faces. After all the horrendous fighting at Tumbleton, and it was horrendous, Silverwing went wild and made a lair on an island in the middle of Red Lake, which, like Tumbleton, is in the reach. Right away you can see it's once again a silver dragon going to an island in a lake. But there's more, because Red Lake also has great skin changer symbolism to parallel the Isle of Faces. If you remember from our Zodiac Children of Garth the Green episode, Rose of Red Lake is one of the named Children of Garth the Green. She was a skin changer, able to transform into a crane at will, a power some say still manifests from time to time in the women of House Crane, her descendants. Another child of Garth was Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who drove the giants from the Reach and warred against the children of the forest, slaying so many at Blue Lake that it has been known as Red Lake ever since. Because of the sexual implications of the Bloody Blade symbolism, it seems likely that Brandon of the Bloody Blade was in fact impregnating children of the forest here at Red Lake and the Reach. And that's of course how you get human skin changers, like those attributed to House Crane, House Stark, and others. Before Brandon waved his bloody blade around, Rose of Red Lake would have been Rose of Blue Lake, which seems an obvious nod to Blue Roses, and thus to Maidens of House Stark. And I take this as a clue that Rose's tale intersects with that of Brandon of the Bloody Blade and House Stark, and thus we conclude that all of this is about humans interbreeding with children of the forest. Consider also that Rose is of the lake, since she's called Rose of Red Lake. And this implies her as being an aquatic humanoid. But of course, that's just symbolic parlance for being of the Green Sea. Her lake transforms from blue to red due to the shed blood of the children of the forest, which is symbolically her blood, since she's the one impregnated by the bloody blade. That brings us back to the idea of the child of the forest, Nissa Nissa, bleeding out into the Green Sea, just like Ygritte boiling and melting in John's Winterfell dream, or the idea of the Dothraki Sea turning to a sea of blood when it flowers. Ergo, the stories we have around Red Lake all have to do with skin changing and humans attaining green seer abilities. So when Silverwing goes and makes her lair there, on an island in the middle of the lake, it is indeed a wonderful parallel to Sea Smoke, the pale silver dragon, going to the Isle of Faces, where Adam talks to the green men. Adam Valerion raising an army of symbolic aquatic people from the Green Sea, the rivermen of the Trident, 
might work as a parallel to the idea of Garth the Green and his son Brandon breeding generations of humans that carry skin changer and green seer genetics from the children of the forest. In addition to that, I would say that the idea of raising an army from the green sea or from the green men is probably having to do with the green zombie Night's Watchmen. I hate to tell you this, guys, but there are two other silver dragons that we know of, and they both go to the god's eye as well, albeit in more violent fashion. One is Quicksilver, the dragon of King Aenys Targaryen and his younger son Aegon after him. Quicksilver and young Aegon were unfortunately pitted against Magor the Cruel, riding the huge Beleriand the Black Dread, with Quicksilver being about a quarter of the size of the Black Dread, who was more or less in his prime at that point. Both Quicksilver and Aegon died at a battle called the Battle Beneath the God's Eye. It's more violent, but it's a direct parallel to Adam taking his silver dragon to the God's Eye in the Isle of Faces. Our fourth and final silver dragon is the most famous one of them all, and that would be Meraxes of the Golden Eyes and Silver Scales, as she is called in the World of Ice and Fire. Meraxes doesn't die over the God's Eye Lake, but the manner of her death is, of course, a smashing replica of the piercing of the god's eye, as I'm sure you will all know by now. Meraxes was shot through her eye with a scorpion bolt at the Hellholt in Dorne, and of course both Meraxes and her rider Rhaenys are analogs to the Fire Moon and Nissa Nissa. Here's a new layer to this familiar story, though. A holt is a small wood or grove, and thus Hellholt implies some sort of hell tree or hell forest, a demon tree, you might say, like the terrible, flesh-consuming weirwoods, the trees which look like they are bleeding and burning, in symbolic imitation of the bleeding and burning of Nissa Nissa and the moon. Ergo, Meraxes takes the god's eye wound and falls into the Hellholt, an infernal grove of trees, symbolically speaking. Both send the familiar message of a dragon going to the god's eye, i.e. going into the weirwood net upon death. An honorable mention goes to Grey Ghost, a wild and presumably pale gray dragon that lived on Dragonstone. Grey Ghost was, sadly, torn apart by Sunfire, with her corpse left in two pieces near the base of the Dragonmont. And Dragonstone is, indeed, an island in the sea and a symbol of the Fire Moon. Dragonstone is not a particularly green island, so it isn't a really strong parallel to the other silver dragons, but two details do bear mentioning. Danny's silver and gray horse is introduced as spirited and splendid, perhaps implying it as a spirit horse. That makes sense, since green seeing is all about astral projection, i.e. flying with your spirit. If we are using the horse as a metaphor for the vehicle that enables such flight, it can be thought of as a spirit horse or a ghost horse. Secondly, check out this cool passage about Grey Ghost. Grey Ghost dwelt in a smoking vent high on the eastern side of the Dragonmont, preferred fish, and was most oft glimpsed flying low over the narrow sea, snatching prey from the waters. A pale gray-white beast, the color of morning mist, he was notably Shy Dragon, who avoided men and their works for years at a time. Morning mists are often described as morning ghosts in A Song of Ice and Fire, and here the gray ghost is as pale as a morning mist, so at least it's very consistent. Gray ghost likes to fly low over the sea, waiting to dive in to catch fish, and that is good sea dragon action. Now here I'd like to add a word on George's gardener writing style and how that interacts with symbolism. Obviously George wrote these Daenerys scenes in the Dothraki Sea with her silver seahorse a long time before he wrote about sea smoke, silver wing, quicksilver, Meraxes' death in Dorne, Moondancer, and all the rest of the Dance of the Dragons. 
He did conceive of House Valerion and their basic symbolism by at least the beginning of A Clash of Kings. But essentially what seems to have happened here is that when George was inventing dragons to fill out the battles of the Dance of the Dragons history, he chose to build on the silver seahorse symbolism he had already created with Danny and House Valerion by giving Lenor and Adam Valerion a dragon called Sea Smoke, whose name and symbolism correlate to Danny's silver horse. He did the same with all these other silver dragons going to the god's eye in various ways. And the same goes for Moondancer's legendary fight with Sunfire and all of Bela's life story. Essentially, George is just building on the symbolism he laid out at first as he fleshes out the corners of his world. All of which to say, it is no accident that Danny is riding a silver seahorse around the green sea. It takes the obvious seahorse metaphor implied by the horse lords ruling a grassland sea and brings in a whole metric assload of other green seer dragon symbolism, as I'm sure you can see by now. Wooden Wings This section is sponsored by the support of our Long Night's Watch patrons. Sharon Ice Eyes, Dread Ferryman of the North, Wielder of the Staff of the Old Gods, a weirwood staff banded in Valerian steel. Synxia, Frozen Fire Queen of the Summer Snows and Burner of Winter's Wick. Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck, the Frozen Thunderbolt, whose words are, The Way Must Be Tried. And the Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, Jedi of Just Ice, he who awaits the Corn King. Horses that ride in the Dothraki Sea are like seahorses. I think we got that by now. But that's actually only one side of the seahorse metaphor coin, because there are a not insignificant number of ships that sail on actual water, which are thought of as horses. A seahorse of another color. It was prophesied that the stallion will ride to the ends of the earth, she said. The earth ends at the Black Salt Sea, Drogo answered at once. He wet a cloth in a basin of warm water to wipe the sweat and oil from his skin. No horse can cross the poisoned water. In the free cities there are ships by the thousand, Danny told him, as she had told him before. Wooden horses with a hundred legs that fly across the sea on wings full of wind. The seahorse material that we just hashed out in detail is really all about green seeing, and I briefly mentioned that the seahorse works very similarly to the sea dragon boat idea, since both of them are vehicles that you can use to ride or sail the green sea, which essentially means astral projection through the use of the weirwood tree. Well, wooden seahorse boats basically merge those ideas, especially since it's the dragon princess, Daenerys, who wants to sail these seahorse boats. Then they would be sea dragon ships and wooden seahorses. The astral projection of green seeing is spelled out by the fact that these wooden seahorses have wings of wind on which they can fly. Danny also mentions something about the stallion who mounts the world riding to the ends of the earth, which sounds either like astral projection or maybe like a prophecy of doom. The stallion who rides to the ends of the earth could be read like Nero fiddles to the ends of Rome, or even just as the stallion riding to an event which is the end of the earth. We'll come back to the stallion who mounts next episode. Let's stick with winged wooden seahorses for a minute and see where we get with that. Seahorse boats with wings full of wind actually bring us back to Danny's silver seahorse for a moment, which, as it turns out, has windy wings too. As Drogo gives her the silver seahorse, she goes for a ride, and as she picks up speed, she finds herself headed straight for a campfire. The silver horse leapt the flames as if she had wings. 
When she pulled up before Magister Illyrio, she said, "'Tell Caldrogo that he has given me the wind.' The fat Pentoshi stroked his yellow beard as he repeated her words in Dothraki, and Annie saw her new husband smile for the first time. The last sliver of sun vanished behind the high walls of Pentos to the west just then. Danny had lost all track of time. Ah, so it's a windy, winged seahorse, perfect for flying, like a green seer flies. And, of course, the wind is what the green seers use to speak through the rustling leaves of the trees. And you might even remember Veramir's spirit flying on a wind when he's going from his body to the body of the one-eyed wolf in which he resides for the rest of his life. Danny's silver horse here is like the wind, and that reminds us of the swift-as-the-wind-he-rides language of the stallion who mounts prophecy. Notice that Danny loses all track of time while riding this gray horse. This seems like a reference to the timelessness of the green seer existence. She's riding her winged silver-gray seahorse in the green sea and losing track of time. I think you can see what's going on here. I hope you know that House Valerian is also going to get up in the mix of this other side of the seahorse metaphor coin. I mean, they do love boats, after all. Ships. Excuse me. They, they do love ships, after all. There's a great clue about their seahorse being linked to flying ships during the burning of the seven-slash-forging-of-fake-lightbringer scene on Dragonstone. Davos sees his own sons mingling with the nobility, including the heirs of House Valerion, and taking pride in this, he thinks, In time, my little black ship will fly as high as Valerian's seahorse. Which gives us both flying ships and flying silver seahorses in one line. And at the risk of stating the obvious, this is all happening right when the wooden sea dragon boats turned statues of the gods of the seven are burned, and when Lightbringer is forged. Flying boats, flying seahorses, and burning sea dragon boats, all in one, all gathered around the Lightbringer ritual. On Dragonstone, a smoking rock in the sea. Oh, and look at the cute little red comet up in the sky. Now, not too long after the burning of the Seven, it's finally time for Stannis to attack King's Landing, to take what is his by rights. Chill out, bro. Don't take yourself so seriously. Naturally, the Valerians are a major part of this fleet, and we see an excellent juxtaposition of sea dragon and seahorse symbolism when they approach the city. The war horn sounded again, commands drifting back from the fury. Davos felt a tingle in his missing fingertips. Out, oars, he shouted. Form line. A hundred blades dipped down into the water as the oars' master's drum began to boom. The sound was like the beating of a great, slow heart, and the oars moved at every stroke a hundred men pulling as one. Wooden wings had sprouted from the wraith and Lady Maria as well. The three galleys kept pace, their blades churning the water. Slow cruise, Davos called. Lord Valarion's silver hold, pride of Driftmark, had moved into her position to port of wraith, and bold laughter was coming up fast, but Harriden was only now getting her oars into the water, and Seahorse was still struggling to bring down her mast. The drums are beating in unison like a great heartbeat, and we've discussed this previously as a symbol of the hive mind of the heart trees, issuing forth from a fleet of Stannis's sea dragon ships, ones which then go on to burn with green fire to make the green seer symbolism even thicker. Fire, fire! Revisiting this passage again, we can see that the wooden wings of the sea dragon boats sprout exactly when the hive mind heartbeat is achieved. 
This is heavy-duty astral projection symbolism, and wooden wings are about as obvious a reference to the idea of using trees to fly as you could possibly think of. As promised, you can see that right alongside all this great sea dragon ship stuff, we also find seahorses, Lord Valerion's silver ship, and another ship called Seahorse, which is presumably also owned by the Valerions. I mean, I'd hate to be the dude from a minor house who shows up to the war with a ship named Seahorse. <laughs> See the look on Lord Valerion's face, like, what is the meaning of this? <laughs> Anyways, all of these seagoing dragon boats and winged wooden seahorses are flying straight for the fire of the gods, and they get that in the form of a 50-foot-tall jade demon with a dozen hands in each a whip, and whatever they touched burst into fire. One of the ships touched by the jade demon is Lord Valerion's shining silver ship. Lord Valerion's shining pride of Driftmark was trying to turn, but the demon ran a lazy green finger across her silvery oars, and they flared up like so many tapers. For an instant, she seemed to be stroking the river with two banks of long, bright torches. All right, now those wooden wings are burning. Shades of Icarus, perhaps. And either way, it's the merging of the burning sea dragon boat idea and the winged wooden seahorse idea. The green fire of the gods has been obtained, although I'm not sure how proud Lord Valerion is feeling right at the moment. The name Pride of Driftmark actually does create another parallel to Danny's damnable silver horse that I won't stop talking about. Hesitantly, she reached out and stroked the horse's neck, ran her fingers through the silver of her mane. Caldrogo said something in Dothraki, and Magister Illyrio translated. Silver for the silver of your hair, the call says. She's beautiful, Danny murmured. She is the pride of the Kalisar, Illyrio said. Custom decrees that the Khaleesi must ride a mount worthy of her place by the side of the call. The pride of the horse lords is a silver seahorse, and the pride of Driftmark is a silver ship belonging to the seahorse lord. And come on, you know that ship has got to have a seahorse of some kind on its prow, right? Anyway, let's hope Danny's silver does not catch on fire like Lord Valerian's silver ship. Or like this horse from A Dance with Dragons. In a dozen heartbeats, they were past the Dothraki as he galloped far below. To the right and left, Danny glimpsed places where the grass was burned and ashen. Drogon had come this way before, she realized. Like a chain of gray islands, the marks of his hunting dotted the green grass sea. A vast herd of horses appeared below them. There were riders, too, a score or more, but they turned and fled at the first sight of the dragon. The horses broke and ran when the shadow fell upon them, racing through the grass until their sides were white with foam, tearing the ground with their hooves. But as swift as they were, they could not fly. Soon one horse began to lag behind the others. The dragon descended upon him, roaring, and all at once the poor beast was aflame. Yet somehow he kept on running, screaming with every step until Drogon landed on him and broke his back. Danny clutched the dragon's neck with all her strength to keep from sliding off. Yeah, I mean, horses can't fly. That would be silly. Of course, Danny's silver horse did seem like it had wings when she first wrote it. And if we read the quote again, we actually find hope that Danny's horse will avoid a fiery fate. The line was, her silver horse leapt the flames as if she had wings. See, good news. Flies right over the fire, safe and sound. Danny's last A Dance with Dragons chapter, from which the last quote came, 
also has a nice passage where Danny actually compares riding Drogon to riding her silver horse. The dragon lords of Old Valyria had controlled their mounts with binding spells and sorcerous horns. Daenerys made do with a word and a whip. Mounted on the dragon's back, she oft felt as if she were learning to ride all over again. When she whipped her silver mare on her right flank, the mare went left. For a horse's first instinct is to flee from danger. When she laid the whip across Drogon's right side, he veered right, for a dragon's first instinct is always to attack. If we're comparing Danny's mounts to one another, as she does here, then we can look at the silver mare as a symbol of the moon, pre-destruction. An untainted silver sea, looking glass flat. A nice, happy silver moon, or a nice, happy silver horse. Drogon is like the moon post-destruction, a fire-breathing dragon, ready to wreak devastation and death upon everything, symbolic of the fiery black meteors that the moon became. Recall that Danny's silver hair burns off when she mounts Drogon in Daznak's pit, just as it did in Drogo's pyre when she woke the dragons. This symbolizes the shift from silver moon to a burnt moon. Speaking of Drogo's pyre, that's actually where we're going to finish this essay, with our last flying silver or gray horse. This one really does fly up to the stars. The flames were so beautiful, the loveliest things she had ever seen. Each one a sorcerer robed in yellow and orange and scarlet, swirling long, smoky cloaks. She saw a horse, a great gray stallion limbed in smoke, its flowing mane a nimbus of blue flame. Yes, my love, my sun and stars, yes, mount now, ride now. Her vest had begun to smolder, so Danny shrugged it off and let it fall to the ground. Now, she thought, now. And for an instant, she glimpsed Khal Drogo before her, mounted on his smoky stallion, a flaming lash in his hand. He smiled, and the whip snaked down at the pyre, hissing. This really is similar to Danny's horse, which looks like a gray sea and like silver smoke. Drogo's mount is a great gray stallion, limbed in smoke, with a mane of blue flame. It's being summoned here as the moon maiden is burned, as the dragons are woken, and as the fiery sorcerers dance and swirl their smoky cloaks. The column of rising smoke and ash is a weirwood tree symbol via the ash tree dual metaphor, something we covered in detail in Weirwood Compendium 4 in a grove of ash. And we also know that there are other weirwood symbols here, like the burning logs with secret hearts, the thunderous green dragon awakening, and one or two others. It's here that Danny's Nissa Nissa sacrifice opens up the way for Azor High to ride the gray slash silver horse, almost as if Danny had given her silver horse to Drogo. Now he can ride up to the Sea of Stars. In Danny's Wake the Dragon Dream, which foreshadows this dragon hatching bonfire, there's an allusion to the Silver Sea Horse being an astral projection mount that can gallop through the stars. Her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars. As above, so below. Because the grass below is a sea, just as the stars above are a sea. Honestly, I mostly included the last quote because the Sea of Stars line is so cool. But the far stronger clue about riding the silver or gray horse into the stars comes at the beginning of the alchemical wedding chapter when Danny's inner monologue basically explains the Dothraki beliefs about such things. When a horse lord dies, his horse is slain with him, so he might ride proud into the nightlands. 
The bodies are burned beneath the open sky, and the call rises on his fiery steed to take his place among the stars. The more fiercely the man burned in life, the brighter his star will shine in the darkness. Jogo spied it first. There, he said in a hushed voice. Danny looked and saw it, low in the east. The first star was a comet, burning red, blood red, fire red, the dragon's tail. She could not have asked for a stronger sign. According to Dothraki beliefs, Drogo is riding this stallion of smoke and flame up to the stars, whereupon the red comet will apparently become his star, his final mount in the starry calisar, as Danny refers to it later. This creates a wonderful parallel between Danny and Drogo as it pertains to their mounts. So Danny traded the silver horse for the black dragon. And Drogo's spirit is riding the gray, smoky stallion up to the stars, where he trades it in for the red dragon comet. I also can't resist pointing out that when Danny rides her dragon, she thinks about reaching the comet. She tried to imagine what it would feel like to straddle a dragon's neck and soar high into the air. It would be like standing on a mountaintop, only better. The whole world would be spread out below. If I flew high enough, I could even see the Seven Kingdoms and reach up and touch the comet. Not only is she flying up to the comet like Drogo, this passage really sounds a lot like Bran's coma dream, flying over the world. A similar line comes when she recalls her flight on Drogon from Daznak's pit, where she saw a silver moon almost close enough to touch. And again, the flying and looking down at the world language is very similar to Bran's coma dream flight. Bran's dream was essentially a small taste of the Green Seer astral projection magic, and that's what's implied with all this flying up to the stars and the comet and the moon, astral projection. All of this is enabled by the smoky stallion or by the silver seahorse or other such weirwood symbols. It's astral projection through the use of the weirwoods, and the destination seems to be dragon. Here I will mention two other occurrences of silver smoke that pertain to these ideas. One is Bran's wolf, Summer, whose fur is silver and smoke. And Bran does indeed hone his skin-changing abilities in Summer before upgrading to the weirwood tree as his final mount. The other silver smoke we saw was in the last weirwood compendium essay. Or maybe it was two essays ago, I'm not sure. It was that fiery ladder that the fire mage climbed towards the latticed roof of the market where Danny and Quaithe are hanging around talking about magic coming into the world. You may remember that the ladder disappears and it left no more than a wisp of silver smoke. That ladder was a symbol of climbing to the stars and thus astral projection. Those of you screaming for me to talk about Sleipnir can finally let out your breath, yes. Odin's eight-legged horse Sleipnir is a great gray stallion, the best of all horses, and he's basically a vehicle for astral projection and riding through the cosmos. Martin surely got the notion of a gray and silver horse as a symbol of astral projection and the weirwoods from Sleipnir, who looms quite large in Norse myth, which George has studied extensively. We are already familiar with Odin's other astral projection horse, the gallows horse, Yggdrasil, which is a horse in the sense that men are said to ride the gallows tree, and Odin is thought of as riding Yggdrasil throughout the cosmos. Essentially, what's going on here is that the same shamanic idea is approached through two different but similar metaphors involving horses. One horse is really a tree, and Martin is using that as his primary influence for creating the weirwoods. 
and by making use of the gray and silver horse symbol and the seahorse symbol to navigate various green seas, he's tying Sleipnir into the Weirwood family of ideas, too. Unfortunately, Sleipnir and astral projection horses are topics too big and fun to unleash at this late point in an essay. So, this is pretty much where we're going to pick up next time in Weirwood Compendium 9, The Stallion Who Mounts the World. We'll start with a better explanation of Sleipnir and the shamanic practices behind the concept of an astral projection horse, which is quite interesting. And then we'll tear into the stallion who mounts the world idea, which is one of the coolest symbolic metaphors that George has come up with in the entire series, in my opinion. But don't tune out yet. We've got a bonus round, because there's more House Valerian goodies. So I've got a couple more really great tidbits of House Valerian symbolism, which I just couldn't fit in earlier without breaking the narrative flow. So I'm adding them to the end as a bit of a bonus. You may recall that the Valerians of Driftmark have a wooden throne. That's right, it's called the Driftwood Throne. And that reminds us at once of both the Driftwood Crowns of the Ironborn and the Grey King's Weirwood Throne of Naga's Jaws. The Driftwood Throne is a wooden throne that comes from the sea, just as the Grey King's throne is implied as coming from the sea in two ways. It's said to be a sea dragon jaw throne, which comes from the sea as in a sea monster, but it's actually a weirwood throne, which implies the green sea. And when we take the green sea word play in mind and then take a look at House Valerion and their driftwood throne, all this starts making a bit more sense. A wooden throne always makes us think of the weirwood throne of a green seer, and the idea of a driftwood throne that came from the sea from the Merlin King himself, actually, according to legend, now reads as a throne which is tied to the Green Sea. And that brings us right back to Weirwood Thrones once again. The story of how the Valerians got this wooden throne and the rest of their island is pretty great, even though it's only one line in the world of ice and fire. It just calls it the ancient Driftwood Throne, the high seat of the Valerians, which legend claims was given to them by the Merlin King to conclude a pact. No, I'm not sure if the Merlings were living on Driftmark and the Valerians wiped them out, or if the first Valerians just have a habit of bartering with Merlings, or, most likely, this is just a really strange case of the more modern Valerians becoming enmeshed in older local myths about the Driftwood Throne and the Merlin King. Basically, they are putting on the floppy ears of the people they conquered. But, and this is the fun part, I think this legend can be taken as a possible allegory to the history of the Iron Islands. It goes something like this. The Iron Islands, like Driftmark, used to be inhabited by fish people. But at some point, dragon people came by sea and conquered the fish people, intermarried with them, and then sat in their wooden chair. In doing so, the dragon people became sea dragons, became green seers. The Grey King would be the dragon-blooded pirate from Ashai who conquered the Iron Islands and then sat in the probably weirwood throne of Naga's Jaws. And that's very comparable to the idea of the first Valerians, dragon people, coming from Valeria to conquer the Merlings and then take the wooden throne from their Merlin King. So is this the story of the Iron Islands? Well, perhaps. I mean, it certainly does seem like a detailed allegory which matches our own headcanon our own interpretations of the legend so far. 
And there's yet another echo of it right here in the Dothraki Sea where we've been playing this whole episode. Remember those fisher queens who ruled the Silver Sea from their floating palace? Well, according to legend, a great warrior hero, conspicuously named Hushor Amai, forged a new nation called Sarnor from the people of the grasslands, and he was supposedly the last descendant of the fisher queens. Hushor Amai is an obvious Azor Ahai callout in some sense, and here he is as a conqueror using the name of the fisher queens to make a new throne for himself, ruling over the sea that the fisher queens once ruled. For what it's worth, the idea of Hushor Amai as some sort of Azor Ahai echo is strengthened when you look at the name of the last hero king of the Sarnori, who is also an Azor Ahai echo. His name is Mazor Alexai. Hushor and Mazor and Azor, Amai and Alexai and Ahai. These two Sarnori kings, who sound so much like Azor Ahai, ruled over the Dothraki Sea and the three great lakes, which were the remnants of the Silver Sea. Oh, and those Sarnori? They were expert breeders and riders of horses, and their great weapon of war was their cavalry, who went to battle in war chariots. So they were seahorse lords as well, just like the Dothraki. The second loose end, which actually goes back to Weirwood Compendium 6, is the idea of a green-eyed Valerian, or green-eyed, dragon-blooded person. In her Wake the Dragon dream, Danny famously saw a vision of the gemstone emperors, who had hair of gold, silver, and platinum white, and one of them had eyes of jade. I had asked what this might represent. A green-eyed dragon person, perhaps? A dragon green seer? Well, I really wanted to save all the House Valerian stuff for one episode, so I didn't go any further into it then. But we do have one such example of a green-eyed dragon person in the main story, who is, of course, draped in sea dragon and green dragon symbolism. That would be Orain Waters, the Bastard of Driftmark, who is the half-brother to Monfred Valerion, Lord of the Tides and Master of Driftmark. This is from a Circe chapter of A Feast for Crows. Marjorie was dancing with her cousin, Alla, Mega with Sir Talad the Tall, the other cousin, Eleanor, was sharing a cup of wine with the handsome young bastard of Driftmark, Arrain Waters. It was not the first time the queen had made note of Waters, a lean young man with gray-green eyes and long silver-gold hair. The first time she had seen him, for half a heartbeat she had almost thought Rhaegar Targaryen had returned from the ashes. It is his hair, she told herself. He is not half as comely as Rhaegar was. His face is too narrow, and he has that cleft in his chin. The Valarians came from old Valyrian stock, however, and some had the same silvery hair as the dragon kings of old. Oh man, there's just so much here. We've mentioned the Rhaegar returned from the ashes bit before, as that implies Rhaegar as an Azor High dragon figure being reborn from the Weirwoods, which are symbolic burning ash trees. You can see why this fits nicely with the stuff from the Devil in the Deep Green Sea, where we saw Rhaegar symbolically reborn as two different green seer dragon figures. Rhaegal the green dragon, as well as Rhaego, the stallion who mounts the world, who has a lot of green seer symbolism. And now we can add a third to that list, as Rhaegar is figuratively reborn here as Orain Waters, who has the blood of the dragon lords via his Valerian heritage, combined with his grey-green eyes and the name Waters. It goes well beyond that, of course. Cersei names Orain the Grand Admiral of the Royal Fleet, enhancing his sea dragon symbolism. Then he later betrays her and sets himself up as a pirate lord in the Stepstones, calling himself Lord of the Waters, 
which makes him a Merlin King, Grey King, Sea Lord figure. And I'll also add that Orain actually was responsible for the building of those Dromans. So just like the Grey King built the first longships, Orain actually takes charge of building this fleet, which he then steals and sails to the Stepstones. A dragon lord of the waters, setting himself up as a pirate around Bloodstone Island? Well, that's kind of familiar. It reminds us of Bela Targaryen's father, Daemon Targaryen, who named himself King of the Narrow Sea and took Bloodstone Island for his seat. He was basically a glorified pirate, though. He drove out all the old pirates and promptly began charging tariffs and taxes for any who wanted to traverse the Stepstones. Point being, Orain has some nice Azor Ahai pirate lord symbolism to go along with his sea dragon and reborn Rhaegar symbolism. Other pirate lord versions of Azor Ahai include Euron Greyjoy, who needs no introduction as a Bloodstone Emperor figure, the aforementioned Daemon Targaryen, who rode a red dragon and took Bloodstone for his seat, the red kraken Dalton Greyjoy, who carried the Valyrian steel sword Nightfall with its moonstone pommel, and who gained his nickname when once he took a dozen wounds and emerged from the fight drenched head to heel in blood. And then, of course, there's the Grey King, the pirate lord from Ashai, who sailed to Westeros in a weirwood boat. Or maybe he flew by dragon, and then built a weirwood boat when he got here. We'll sort that one out another time, but the point is, Grey King is a pirate lord Azor Ahai person, like Orain Waters, the lord of the waters with grey-green eyes. Now that we understand the Green Sea, Green Seer thing, all of these pirate lord Azor Ahai people suddenly seem to be reinforcing the message that Azor Ahai went into and seemingly came out of the Weirwood Net, and that he can probably be considered a king of the Weirwood Net. We've got to look at all that Merlin King stuff again a little harder, too. Wyman Manderley and the Merman's Court. Yes, be patient. There's lots of Green Sea symbolism to explore. In any case, Azor Ahai can probably be considered not only a king of the Weirwood Net, but more accurately, a usurper king of the Weirwood Net. All of these pirate kings were clear usurpers, Daemon Targaryen's older brother Viserys I Targaryen was the official king of the Seven Kingdoms when Daemon named himself King of the Narrow Sea. Dalton Greyjoy rose in, quote-unquote, rebellion with Daemon's blacks during the Dance of the Dragons, and then he refused to stop reaving once the dance was concluded, which really makes him a rebel to the throne. Euron is a given. He's rising in rebellion against the very gods themselves, let alone making a claim for the Iron Throne. And even the Grey King is kind of a usurper in the sense that we hear he had a leal elder brother from whom House Goodbrother descends. Why wasn't the older brother the king? In this sense, the Grey King is a younger brother who took the throne, just like the Bloodstone Emperor himself. All of this points to Azor High as a usurper of the Weirwood Net, which is important enough to make a big point of here. It's one of the running questions that we've been trying to answer. Did Azor Ahai force his way into the Weirwood Net, possibly against the will of the trees? I'd say the answer is increasingly looking like a yes. 